My name is Caitlin Darby, and welcome to With the Side of Crime. Um, I guess I'll give you, like, a little background on why I started this, because I really like true crime, and I really love to eat. And even though, um, I won't exactly be incorporating cooking into the show, like, right off the bat, um, because I'm fucking poor, and... My life is in shambles right now. Um, I will be posting the recipes um, that I pair up with each show to the social media <sighs> for With a Side of Crime. <clears throat> so you'll be able to get those there. Um, to a little background about me. I am 23. I'm like a week shy of 24 right now. Um, I'm living in New Orleans at the moment, graduated from college, couldn't find a job in my field because college is a scam. Okay, I'm, I'm done. Um, so I'm interning right now, most likely preparing myself for grad school because Finding a job in the field of public relations in Louisiana is a bitch and a half, and, uh, yeah. So, okay. Since Halloween is coming up pretty shortly, I wanted to get this, this episode released, um, so it will be Halloween crimes, and... Let's get into the first case. Um, this particular case is titled The Candyman. And the details are this. On Halloween night, 1974, children all over Deer Park, Texas were trick-or-treating. Ronald Clark O'Brien was taking his kids, 8-year-old Timothy and 5-year-old Elizabeth, through the neighborhood. A neighbor, Jim Bates, and his son tagged along. The kids banged on the door of a house with no lights and no one answered. The kids impatiently ran off while Ronald stayed behind. After a while, he caught up with the others. He came back bearing a handful of pixie sticks. Now it's not the regular little paper pixie sticks, it's those big ass pixie sticks and like the plastic. They're like... The length of, like, a $5 foot long or something. You know, those big, thick ones. <clears throat> so, turns out someone had been inside the dark house. He dispersed the candy to the children. Before bed, Timothy was allowed one treat, and he chose the big-ass pixie stick. After he took his first taste, he complained that it was bitter. His father got him a glass of Kool-Aid to wash the taste out. Like, what? This should be a sign right here of bad parenting. Your kid's about to go to bed. You give him basically pure sugar. And when it doesn't taste right, you're like, hey, here is some more sugar to help you wash that taste out. I'm sorry. I guess we were just raised differently. In an hour, Timothy was dead. Mike Hinton, who was the former Harris County prosecutor, got the investigation ruling by calling the chief medical examiner from a nearby county. 
He was asked what the boy's breast smelled like, which is, I'm sure, not a strange question to ask like a cop. Um, So he called the morgue and it was revealed that there was an almond scent coming from his mouth. So the chief medical examiner was like, well, this is obviously cyanide. So they did an autopsy and the autopsy confirmed this theory. Reports show that Timothy had enough cyanide in his system to kill two people. The top two inches of the pixie stick were just basically straight poison. So the remaining pixie sticks were taken away from the other children before they could consume them. They noticed that whoever tampered with the candy had closed them back with staples. So I cannot even believe... I guess this was different times and people were more trusting and weren't suspicious of things like that. But if my kid, if I was checking my kid's candy and I noticed the pixie stick was sealed back with a fucking staple, I obviously would not give it to my child. Anyways, um, these staples are what prevented another boy from dying he was trying to open the candy but he wasn't strong enough to break the staple so the police took ronald back to the neighborhood where he had been trick-or-treating at so he could show them the exact house that he got the candy from only problem was he couldn't find the house and he didn't know what the person who gave him the candy looked like so the cops obviously became suspicious um After a few days, they took O'Brien back and were more aggressive. He remembered and pointed out a house. The resident wasn't home, so they went to his place of employment and arrested him. So no, (laughs) no questioning or anything. They just went in there, first time seeing this man, and were like, you're arrested for, like, the murder of these kids, the murder of this kid and the attempted murder of these kids, whatever. So the only problem with that was that he had been at work the night the whole trick-or-treating incident happened. His wife and his daughter had been home, but they turned out the lights early because they ran out of candy. And there were witnesses to confirm their stories. So um, other strange things, I guess, started happening. Ronald had written songs. Like, he wrote a song about his son Timothy joining the Lord in heaven. So strange. He got aggravated actually with his family members when they refused to stay up and watch a performance of him singing that song being broadcast on television. So he was just acting very bizarrely and the cops were already suspicious of him because of the whole I can't find the house I don't know what the person looks like incident. So, it comes to light that he had taken out life insurance policies on both of his kids, totaling $40,000. So, investigators already knew that Ronald owed debts of close $100,000. So, he called his insurers at 9 a.m., 9 a.m. the day after his son died. He's not even... Like, his body is not even cold yet, and you're calling your insurance to try to get his life insurance money. So this is just helping to build a case against him. It's all coming together at this point. So a search of the O'Brien home revealed a pair of scissors with plastic residue on them, which is the same plastic residue that the big-ass pixie sticks happen to be made out of. 
So Orion was arrested and taken in to be questioned. And this is kind of where the plot thickens. O'Brien was attending community college and would ask his professor shit like, what's more deadly, cyanide or another poison? A witness said that a man came into their chemical store looking to buy cyanide in quantities larger than five pounds. So the man from the store couldn't identify exactly who had come in. Like he couldn't identify O'Brien, but he remembered what he had on and said it was either a blue or a beige smock. So O'Brien was an optician, and this is the kind of thing that he wore to work. So things are looking really, really bad for him. So at the time, there was no DNA testing. There was no proof that he actually bought the cyanide. So he maintained his innocence. You know, there were no debit cards, credit cards. I'm pretty sure everything was just being paid for in, like, cash. So you couldn't just go and trace the history of their purchases, things like that. So there were reports that O'Brien really loved the attention that he was getting off of his son's off of his son's death. So he entered a not guilty plea, blaming the poisoning on some sick stranger out to kill kids on Halloween. His friends and family, however, all testified against the candy man, which is what um the name that I guess the media gave him. On June 3rd, 1975, it took 46 minutes for the jury to return the guilty verdict for one charge of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. An hour after that, the decision came through that O'Brien would be executed via electric chair. So all avenues for an appeal for him were explored and ultimately rejected for nearly a decade. And it wasn't until... March 31st, 1984, that he was put to death after every avenue was exhausted. Since the electric chair was ruled a cruel and unusual punishment, he was put to death by lethal injection. On that day, a crowd of 300 people showed up and began shouting trick-or-treat and throwing candy at anti-capital punishments. Is that what it's called? Capital punishment? I don't know, anti-death penalty protesters. So that story is just oddly weird and bizarre. And this guy killed his kid, but he didn't get away with it. So So the next case we're going to discuss is the murder of Martha Moxley. The details are this. On October 30th, 1975, Martha Moxley did not return home after an evening out with friends. Her last stop was at a neighbor's house, brothers Michael and Thomas Kale. They were the nephews of Ethel Kale, wife of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. Now, since I'm mentioning a Kennedy, keep in mind that tragedy has basically followed this family around since the beginning of time. I mean, excuse me. Bad things have have happened to the Kennedys, I mean, as long as I've been hearing about them. The dad having the stroke, um, all the kids dying, the thing with um, the whole Chappaquiddick Chappaquiddick incident. Jesus Christ, why can't I talk? Which I'll cover um, 
at a later date. So just keep that in mind. The next morning, Martha's body was found partially hidden by pine trees in her backyard. She'd been beaten and stabbed. A broken golf club was found nearby and was believed to be the murder weapon. Tommy Skakel, which is the older brother, was questioned. Now, Tommy Skakel is um, 17 at the time, and the younger brother, Michael, was 15 at the time. So police traced the club to a set owned by the Skakel family. Tommy was given a lie detector test and passed. A few years later, Michael was charged with drunk driving. So this kid is a mess, basically. Um, His family worked out a deal so he could avoid prosecution. You know, of course, how rich people fucking get away with all kinds of bullshit. He got away with this. Um, He attended a school in Poland Spring, Maine, where children with with substance abuse problems were treated. So a classmate alleged that in a group therapy session... Um, Michael said that he killed Martha. The Institute's owner denied this. In 1991, the case was reopened, and in 1995, a report was leaked saying that the Skakel family hired PIs who re-interviewed Tommy and Michael after the cops did. So, Jen Livett, who wrote Conviction, Solving the Moxley Murder, said that Tommy admitted that he lied to the police in 1975. Now, I don't have details on what exactly he lied about. <clears throat> but, um, perhaps he came clean to the P.I.s that he lied to the cops about something, or maybe she interviewed him and he admitted that he lied to the cops. I'm not sure. He initially claimed that he'd last seen Martha at 9.30 p.m. the night she'd been killed. His new claim was that the two engaged in mutual masturbation outside of his home. These have got to be white kids. And that she left before 10 p.m. Michael also changed his story in the interview. He told investigators that instead of going to bed after returning from his cousin's home, he climbed a tree outside Martha's window around midnight and masturbated. White kids for sure. In June 1998, an investigator and one-man grand jury were appointed to review information on the Moxley case. The investigation began to focus on Michael and Tommy, who denied any connection to the murder. January 19, 2000, a judge released a report saying that there was enough evidence to bring charges against Michael. Michael, who was 39 at the time, was charged, charged as his juvenile because he was 15 at the time of the crime. He surrendered to the police and was released on $500,000 bond. I will never... If someone is, um, you know, arrested for, like, murder or something... I mean, I, I know that he was a kid at the time and his brain probably wasn't fully developed or whatever excuses they have for childhood killers. But, um... I just don't understand how people can get arrested for murder and then be released and buy their way out of jail for a period of time. Um, anyways, after appearing in court for the murder charge, Michael saw Dorothy Moxley in court and told her that he ha- that she had the wrong guy. So two of Michael's former classmates testified at a pretrial hearing. One said that Michael admitting to having a fragmented memory of the crime 
Well, another one testified that Michael once told him, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. There it is. There it is, folks. Spoiled fucking brat who thinks they can get away with anything just because of their family name and just because they have money. Um, just a little spoiler, he did not get away with it. So a childhood friend of Michael's told him that on the night of Martha's murder, he climbed a tree and masturbated. Now, the friend believed that it wasn't the tree outside of Martha's window, but it was the tree where her body was discovered. So in 2001, a judge ruled that Michael be tried as an adult because there was obviously no institution designed for someone who committed a crime as a child and was now an adult. Um, So there was no institution that could care for him or treat him because he was 40 years old now. I mean, they very obviously couldn't send him to a juvenile detention center or something like that. So the three-week trial concluded in June 2002, and Michael was convicted of killing Martha Moxley. Though no evidence linked him to the crime, the jury just heard about his incriminating, bizarre behavior after she was found. In 2012, Michael was denied parole. Parole? Parole. Okay. In 2012, Michael was denied parole because, I mean, obviously... And then he was released in November 2013, which what was the point of denying his parole only for him to be released the next year? But he was released on $1.2 million bond. And, you know, he's a Kennedy. So, of course, they had the funds. But on December 30th, 2016, Michael's murder conviction was reinstated by the Connecticut Supreme Court. So he is still in prison. Killed a little girl. Y'all, I don't know what's wrong with me. I keep clearing my throat. I keep singing words. I keep saying so. (sighs) My life's a mess, okay? Please forgive me. So, that's all I have for you for Halloween crimes. Um, If you liked the podcast, please feel free to leave a rating or a review so other people can hear about it. Please feel free to support the show on Patreon because, as I said, I graduated with a degree in liberal arts. I don't have a full-time consistent job. I'm fucking broke. And I would like to start cooking on the show once a week, meaning that um, groceries and groceries are expensive. So um, if you'd like to support on Patreon or Cash App, I will link that up somewhere. Um... Rate, review, subscribe on whatever is your preferred podcast listening platform. And um, if you have any suggestions, comments, concerns, please don't leave me anything mean in the ratings or in in reviews. But um, feel free to send an email to withasideofcrime at yahoo.com. Yes, I'm using a Yahoo. Um, I'm not fancy enough for Gmail, I guess. And, um, that's, I mean, I think that's it. Yeah. Thanks for listening.